All right, thanks again, Ben. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, uh, or second or third, maybe, for newish to our church, uh, it's great to have you here, and good to see some new faces back after a while, too, um, in this age of separation and quarantine and lockdowns and all that. So uh, good to see all of you, and welcome. Uh, we are going to preach through today another one of the big questions that we have received as pastors from you guys, so thank you for helping to contribute to uh, this series this summer, uh, which we've been in, I think, since Memorial Day, and we'll have a few more weeks through Labor Day weekend, and then our plan, preaching-wise, in case you kind of like to know where we're going, is uh, to have kind of one Sunday on vision and values, kind of who are we as a church right now, uh, where are we headed, and then to start a longer series in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, We technically preached 1 Corinthians back in 2010, which I'm sure you all remember perfectly. No, I don't remember. Uh, but so we've technically done that book. We're going to preach 2 Corinthians, uh, which will take us probably through Easter-ish uh, time period. So kind of working out the kinks in that one. But uh, really looking forward to that for most of our school year uh, coming up soon. So, um, but if you're just joining us, we've been doing a big question series for the summer, which is kind of a topical uh, chance to topically preach through uh, theological questions, biblical questions, uh, questions about our philosophy of ministry here at the church uh, and related things like that. And so um, today's question, we'll just dive right in. It's a, kind of a big one and, and uh, takes um, a lot of kind of uh, layer peeling <laughs> to get to the core of the issue. So uh, the question is, how do you read the Old Testament book of Proverbs? How do you read it in a gospel-centered manner? So that question just basically means, how do you read it as though it's a part of a story, as though Jesus and his grace or his gospel, the good news of his death and resurrection, is the key? And so if that whole concept is new to you, just understand that the Bible reads itself in a Christocentric manner. Uh, Christ himself and Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, writes in a way that, 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 su- that suggests the Old Testament is one big prophecy of Christ, and whether it's explicit or implicit. In Proverbs then, being an Old Testament book, th- there's this question sometimes we ask, um, its purpose in the canon, its, its purpose in the story, and, and so forth. So Proverbs, uh, just for a little bit of background, a couple sentences here just really quickly, but Proverbs is one of five wisdom books, we call it, genre-wise, of the Old Testament, written by King Solomon, who was the son of King David, uh, around 1000 BC. So uh, it contains basically those different ways to summarize what it is. It basically contains Proverbs, or short, pithy teachings on what it means to live a wise, ordered life underneath this broader idea of the fear of the Lord. All right, so there, there's so much to it that we don't really have time to, to talk about in a survey manner uh, today, but we will try to cover a lot of bases and answer this question while, in, in a teaching way while still preaching it at the same time because it's not really a classroom so much as a time for all of us to hear God call out to us through a book even like uh, Proverbs. An expanded form of the question, these are, these are my words, but I, in case this helps flush out more uh, why this is kind of a big deal. It's actually been one of my personal questions too. I didn't ask it today, uh, but it's been one of mine as well. And, and I actually was talking to someone last night who didn't know we were going to preach on this. And she was asking me literally, have you ever preached the book of Proverbs before? And I'm like, funny, you should ask. Like literally 12 hours before I'm standing up here. But, um, but uh, so it's kind of cool too. Anyway, uh, in my words, but an expanded form of the question would be to say something like, the Proverbs can be hard to apply sometimes. And sometimes they're not always true. On top of this, when we're interested in reading the Bible as a story alongside the idea that Jesus Christ fulfills and is the finish line to all of the Old Testament scriptures, that we're no longer under the Old Testament law, 
but under grace. The grace of God through Jesus has bearing on our life now, not the law anymore. With all of that in mind, we can sometimes get stuck on Proverbs. What purpose do they serve? Are they the same thing as law commands? How should Christians read them now from a New Testament perspective? All right? So just some initial thoughts on this from kind of the broad overview uh, perspective before I dive into a few actual sections of of the book. Um, Wisdom literature has to do with life's best practices. So whereas a law might say, do not be prideful or there might be a consequence, a proverb might say on the same topic, friendship is better than fame or God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you see how they both kind of address the same thing, but from a little bit different angles. But one of the larger themes to understand here that's bigger than Proverbs, that has more to do with like larger biblical themes, is the idea that wisdom and order, the opposite of chaos, order, are closely related thematically and theologically. And biblically, at this point in the story, like if you were reading the Bible cover to cover and you got to this point in the story, so historically, but also theologically and just literarily, we're still in the process in the story of moving from chaos in the beginning when sin and evil entered the world to order that ultimately comes through Christ, but here in the middle, in these middle periods of history, that is partially attainable through proverbial wisdom, a type of order that's partially attainable, you could say, through proverbial teaching. But again, still not fully attainable until Christ comes. Who, is, who said about himself, he is the ultimate man of wisdom. In Matthew 12, 42, Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is here. And he's talking about himself. So he directly links himself with the wise man, King Solomon, and by extension, everything he said and did and wrote. So he spoke in parables, which kind of sound like uh, Proverbs sometimes. But also he was a king, he was a man of peace, he was a man of wisdom, he was the son of God. And so when we read Proverbs, we should always ultimately then have Christ in mind, who brings order at the highest level. So at least have that in mind. There's a lot going on here in the book and a lot of higher concepts to try to grasp, but at least have in mind that Jesus completes the Proverbs. He is the second Solomon in the story. There are two Solomons in the Bible. Jesus is the second figurative spiritual one, being an actual genealogical descendant of Solomon, but also a theological, thematic descendant, we would say as well, because he resembles him like a great-grandfather uh, to a great-grandson. Uh, he, there's resemblance here, and, and as readers, we should, uh, we should be clued into this. Otherwise, meaning stays kind of hidden. So here's some of the best Proverbs advice I can give off the cuff. Proverbs are reflections of partial and imperfect order and are therefore prophecies of Jesus Christ, hope for the true and better Solomon in chaos ender who was to come. But to bring this down to earth a little bit here, acknowledging these larger themes doesn't mean the Proverbs can't speak to our lives directly or practically today. The New Testament actually quotes a few of them in connection with Christian living, especially in the areas of love and humility. But here's a really important thing to understand off the, off the bat here before we dive in there are almost always a few things going on with a proverb at at once, simultaneously. There's a wise principle for living. There's maybe a warning mixed in. But then there's a prophecy of Jesus Christ as well who somehow completes it. 
or fulfills it at the highest level. So then with that in mind, you might, as you read Proverbs, have these three feelings going on at the same time. In fact, I might even say you probably should have them all at the same time. There might be some exceptions because there are so many Proverbs and different angles on different truths and observations of sociological phenomena and things like that. But in general, you should probably almost have, and at least there's an invitation for us to have more than one feeling going on when we're reading even one sentence of a proverb. And those three things are right here. We could be feeling, oh, that's so good, or that's so true, or when that thing happens in my life or the world, yes, I've seen that take place and transpire. Or maybe we would say with the first one, uh, life actually does go a little bit better for me usually when I do that or when I think that. But then we also have this layer of, that's heavy and impossible. So a lot of times the Proverbs have this unkeepability to them or just this realization that in the grand scheme of my life, if I'm honest with myself, I haven't done that or I, by nature, just don't live that way. And then the third layer is, that reminds me of Jesus. Something he said, something he did, or ultimately his death and resurrection. All three of those things we can and should be thinking or feeling as we read a section of Proverbs or a lot of times even just one particular proverb. And, and, and I'll show you that today. And so if you're brand new to this, uh, my hope and goal here is that you'll learn something about the components of the book and how to approach it. But what I really want you to hear more than that is God's voice call out to you. And I want to hear that call out to us as a church community saying, this is what I am like. And my son would come later in history to complete these ideas ultimately on the cross. And so if we reverse engineer that, when we read Proverbs, they're about him ultimately, like the whole Old Testament is, one big fat prophecy of the Christ who was to come to die for us, for you and me. All right, so let me go through a few Proverbs today. I was going to do just one and just really go deep, but I think it's best just in light of the question to, to tackle a few of them. I want to start with Proverbs 9, 1 to 6. So if you want to flip around your Bible or phone app, that'd be great. But this will all be on screen too, so feel free just to read, uh, read on screen. Um, one thing just to get your bearings here, that the first nine chapters, uh, if, you want to, if you're into outlines, there's a split right before chapter 10. The first nine chapters are a little bit more like conversation and narrative where it's the exhortation of a dad to his son exhorting wisdom-like things. And there's this tug of war between wisdom and foolishness taking place. They're, they're personified by two wisdom, the seductress folly and the woman of wisdom, uh, who they, they both are calling out to simple-minded people, inviting them into their homes, one, of course, unto death and one, of, uh, one unto life. Um, the Proverbs themselves proper begin in chapter 10. Verse 1. So what you might be familiar with when you think about Proverbs, those actually begin in chapter 10, but the first nine chapters have this conversation of like a, a dad who's aging and a son who might be in his late teens and just sitting him down saying, this is what I've learned. All right, so um, what I want to do then is look at one, one thing from that section to start. And so let me read verses 9, 1 to 6. Verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She's mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. 
Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So just to rephrase this a little bit, wisdom is saying here, wisdom does not reside in you, but outside of you. Like the house in verse 1. The idea is we should say that wisdom is over there. It's across the street. It doesn't reside here in the heart, but it's objective to us. So that might in turn make us think of more basic wisdom principles, like it's wise to make reading a priority, especially the Bible, if we're Christians, or listening to others who are older than me is a, a, a wisdom principle. And if you're a Christian, someone who's older than you in the faith, that's, that's wisdom, because wisdom's outside of us primarily. Knowing I don't have all the answers, and when left to my own devices, I will err on the side of folly. That is a, a wise way to think. So I must search for wisdom outside. So relatedly then, you know, wisdom would say the flip side of the coin is true as well. So wisdom would say, the voices that I hear that say the opposite of these things are the voice of foolishness. So things like wisdom is in here, or I'm a good person to the core, or I don't need others, just myself. Or when culture says now, you do you. That's not the voice of wisdom calling to you. It might sound wise, it might sound flattering, it might sound helpful, but the Bible's saying wisdom because it's not here. The idea of you do you or you are enough, that's not the voice of wisdom. That is the voice of foolishness. It's the voice of folly and it's the voice of the seductress folly. And Proverbs says in her home is death, so don't be seduced by her. Another important, important idea here is that you see a lot of grace in the idea that a person can be simple and unwise and unintelligent and sinful, distant from God. I'm adding some things here, but this is what this means. A person can be all of that and still be called by wisdom in that very state. There's lots of grace in this idea that wisdom doesn't call out to the put together, but to messed up fools like me. And, and, and all one has to do to be saved is to hear the call and, and enter the home. And, and that's where we get to this Jesus side of the passage, which again, sees him as the essence of wisdom in the Bible and the essence of each individual proverb. And when we do that, we see that these words and images are actually Christ himself. He is, for example, the slaughtered beast. He is the one who spills his blood, and his blood is the wine. It's no coincidence that sacrifice is linked with wisdom here. Like in Luke 22 in the New Testament, when Jesus says, very similarly to the woman, wisdom in Proverbs 9, Jesus took bread, gave it to his disciples right before his death, and says, this is my body given for you. Speaking of his death, his impending death, do this, eat in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so the idea is that through Jesus' death, that's how he ultimately sets a table. That's how ultimately wisdom sets a table and calls out to sinners, like Jesus called out to the 12 sinful, simple, mostly unschooled men who later became his disciples, uh, people like us. It's through his death he sets a table, through his death and his shed blood that he invites the simple in uh, to be reconciled with God. So that now, like Psalm 23 says, Jesus can dine with his enemies. And this is the idea. This is the gospel, that God is reconciling the world to himself. He's reconciling his enemies, not good people, 
his enemies to himself. And you get a glimpse of that here in Psalm 23, the son of David who would come to die, not just with, not with people who like him, people he was at war with formerly, and that's, that's us. That's good news for enemies, uh, for evil people, for unwise, for non-proverb-thinking people like, like you and me. All right, moving right along, uh, Proverbs 10.12, which is a shorter, uh, just a one-verse proverb. It's a really good one. It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. All right, so wisdom here essentially is saying, again, to kind of rephrase this a bit, it's saying because strife means bitter disagreement over things, uh, what this proverb is essentially saying is yelling at each other makes problems worse. So hate and strife go together. I was reading a, a, a Star and Tribune article the other day about political disagreements in this small western Minnesota town. Maybe some of you guys saw this. And I literally laughed out loud when I read this one paragraph. I wasn't sure if I was, I was being punked, you know? Like, are they like, is, is the joke on me? Like, are they being sarcastic? Or is this, are they actually just with a straight face saying this? But I'll read this paragraph, laughed out loud when they said that the dueling political protests of this one small rural town are a microcosm of what's happening in America with both sides passionately proclaiming their views and neither side appearing to make much headway in convincing the other. Like, this is, this is what we're, we're seeing right now. Like, when I read that last line, I thought, are they joking? Like, because when does that actually work, right? Like, when does, when does the protesters on one side convince the other when they dig their heels in and yell? Uh, it never happens. Never Hatred stirs up strife. It, 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 pull, like, it pulls sediment from the bottom of a, of a paint can up to the top when you mix it. It makes it more full. It makes the problem worse. But love covers offenses. But when we love, look at the last clause now. It's interesting because it says, when we love, notice it doesn't say, love does convince others of our, of our positions. It does end strife in that way. It doesn't say that. But it does say it covers up and it heals offenses and, and mistreatments. I was reading something from Ray Ortland Jr., who's a pastor in uh, Tennessee, a guy I follow in, uh, in our, one of our networks. He was saying, the problem today isn't that there are people out there that disagree with you. The problem is that you and I are bad at loving those who disagree with us. That's the problem. We don't love our enemies well at all. Who has done that? Right? I mean, if, this is, this, if there's truth, any truth at all, to this proverb, it's love will cover the offense. It will mend the relationship. It may not convince someone to think exactly like you. That, that doesn't happen a lot, actually. But love actually does cover up problems relationally you might have with someone you formerly considered an enemy. So we're the problem. We're part of the problem. This is a big part of Proverbs that I, I was mentioning before a little bit, but I want to make sure you guys hear is... Part of what's going on in the Proverbs is a father saying to his son, learn from my mistakes. I haven't done things in this book. I haven't done what I'm telling you. And my life hasn't been ordered because of it. So learn from my mistakes and do the opposite. So in part, this serves like a law-like function. Like if you think about your life and think, when have I done Proverbs 10, 12 well? When have I seen it done well? with others inside or outside of the church or especially, again, inside your own heart 
When have I actively loved and considered my bitter enemies better than myself? And the answer to that is probably very, very, very few times in your life uh, have you truly done that. And with Christ as Christians, this becomes a lot more possible by the Spirit because the gospel shapes us unto that. And that's another sermon altogether. But there's still a heaviness here and an impossibility to feel so that we would reach out to God and say, help us. The way he helps us here, though, is by modeling this at the highest level and more than modeling, fulfilling. You know, so whereas we might see this in a small physical way in our lives, it plays out perfectly, though, with Christ uh, spiritually because his blood literally covers our sins and shames. Sins and shame. And notice the proverb here on top says, love covers all offenses. Is that interesting? All offenses. That should clue us into the, the fact that there's something more being talked about here than simple life hacks. Because even the best versions of this on a human level don't cover all offenses. But Jesus' love does cover all offenses. There's no one spot on our soul that his blood doesn't cover. And so this is where we, start to, we should start to see the problems with applying this on a, a solo human level are is that never, ever happens. It might kind of, sort of happen on a human level, but all offenses, everything, that never happens on a human level. But with Jesus, for you, when God sends his son to cover your shame and sin, to die for you, then it does happen on that level. It's more about him than you, than, than, than me. Romans 4, 7 in the New Testament says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Again, mostly speaking about God and Christ towards us. And so blessing and wisdom in ordered life comes from this type of love covering, whether or not you have perfect human relationships. And no one does. No one does. All right, next, Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Okay, so again, on the one hand, we could look at this and say, this is sometimes true for husbands, right? Sometimes marriages are great, sometimes they're not. Sometimes wives are great, sometimes they're not. Same with husbands. But the greater truth to see here has less to do with the quality of a spouse and more to do, I think, with linking finding a wife or finding a spouse with, quote, obtaining favor from the Lord, which is really interesting in the grand scheme of things biblically, and you might be aware of this, because this type of language, obtaining favor from God, is never spoken about in connection with commandment following, ever. Like, humans don't, we don't receive favor from God based on moral effort. Like, you never see that. But here, it does talk about it in this kind of shocking, striking way where we receive favor when we get married. Like, when, when a man receives a wife, there's, he finds a good thing and he obtains favor. And I think the point of this is, theologically, you know, to have favor linked with marriage is to say favor is a gift given, not something that's earned, because it's relational and it's not independently personal. It comes from outside of us, like a marriage is objective to us, kind of like Proverbs 9 said about wisdom, it's in the house over there. 
uh, or we might, we might say favor is in outside of our hearts. It's in a marriage, you know, outside of us. It's given. It comes down, you know. So, so I might say to my wife, Aletha, or about her, that she is a daily reminder to me of God's grace, how I did nothing to deserve her, but that she fell out of the sky into my life 20 years ago. But, and I, and I found a good thing when I found her. However, the connection theologically that heightens this is to say, just like Jesus came out of the sky to die for me, the ultimate spiritual husband to the ultimate spiritual bride, the church, so that I could have favor with God. So the way that you and I have favor, and this is, why, this is where the Proverbs becomes, this is, this is just as much of a truth for you single people as it is for you marrieds. This is not ultimately about human marriages because human marriages, even if you're married, that might not always be true. But with Christ, it always is. It means that he found you. It means he was searching for you. Uh, Luke 19 says, the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. So it means to marrieds and unmarrieds, to men and women, to good and bad, to rich and poor, to simple and wise, that the God of the universe is favoring us through his Son's finding of us. He's solving the problem by coming into the world and claiming a bride. Not because the bride was spotless, but because she was loved. And that's what this proverb is ultimately. This is the census planure the early church fathers talked about. The, 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 the deeper meaning of a passage that goes beyond the initial surfacey cover. And it's always, always true of him. God favored Jesus when he did this because the God of the universe wanted to save us. And the way he did it was by sending Jesus to marry us to make us one with him spiritually, not by the works of your hands and by what you do, but strictly and only and forever by what he does for us on the cross. Proverbs 19.4, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. All right, lots of stuff going on here too, but, and the point here isn't to say, pursue wealth so you can get friends. You know, uh, it's, it's the opposite, actually. It's, it's to say, it's to show the, I won the lottery, and all of a sudden I have a thousand friends phenomenon. So this proverb then fits in with what I call, and I think I mentioned this phrase earlier, there's a lot of Solomon's teachings fall into this bucket that I call the sociological phenomena category of Proverbs. It, it, it is when Solomon is saying, I'm an old man, God, by his grace, give me a lot of wisdom, and these are the patterns I see play out time and time again in the world, and I'm writing them down. And they're wise, observational, sociological principles. And this fits with it. He's just saying, this is what I've seen time and time again. Don't trust those friends who only love you because you're rich or because you have something to give them. Don't trust them. Expect people to befriend you for selfish reasons. Expect it. Solomon's seen it a thousand times probably, and he's just writing this down saying this is basically almost always true. It's a proverb. It's a teaching. Learn from this, my son, he's saying. That's wisdom. Another proverb or two that fit in, with, in the same bucket is uh, 1728, which says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. I love that one. Like just, it might make you just not talk as much, right? <laughs> like in a, in a group setting or something, or hold your tongue back a little bit before you speak. 
That's that's wise. Talking too quick makes you look foolish. In other words, to flip this around, we would say uh, it's the same thing. Proverbs 18, 17, similarly, I love this one too. Uh, Think about this a lot, actually. It says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes in and examines him. You guys ever see that like in a group setting? Where it's like the, it's, there's, there's, one, there's maybe eight people there, one person speaks, and that sounds like a good plan. Then like the second person says, well, here's what I think, and that's not, that like tends to sound better a lot. Even if it's not like better or more wise, it sometimes, a lot of times, uh, sound, sounds better. So these two things together are basically saying the one who keeps silent but then speaks last seems wisest. All right, so have that in mind. The Proverbs say the one who, who keeps silent but then speaks last seems the wisest. Now, again, on a human level, will that always be the case? No, but many times it is, even if the last thing isn't always better. And that's where it starts to break down on a human level. But, but here's the thing. We've been saying this over and over again. These truths are always true with Jesus. And these wise sayings serve the purpose of him more than our purposes in the end. I mean, think about it. Wasn't it Jesus, the true man of wisdom, who became poor for us and who in his poverty was deserted by his closest friends when he was arrested and when he was crucified? Wasn't it Jesus who was silent, who didn't speak before his accusers and captors all the way to the cross like a sheep to the slaughter? And whose death was the final word that cross-examined the earlier words of the Bible, like the laws and commandments, and found them wanting and unable to save us. And so he replaced them and became wiser and more able to bring order to our chaotic, sinful souls. Isn't this the Christ we know, those of you who know Jesus and who've read about him? Do you see how they're much more about him than us? Hebrews 1, 2 in the New Testament says, but in these last days, actually back up, verse 1 says, in the Old Testament, God spoke in many and various complementary, but many and various ways he spoke. But now things are different. Now he spoke in a singular way, one single precise way through his son, Jesus. We're in the last days, and we have been for 2,000 years. Things shift from the many and the various to the one single. But, but do you see how the Proverbs speak to this? The former things that spoke first aren't as wise as the latter things. They're found wanting compared to him. Because laws can't save you. The stories of the Old Testament can't save you. But Christ, who is the fuller meaning behind them, can. And he does. He's the last word of God. God is not still speaking There's no more additional things he has to say in the world. The Bible's not going to get longer. There's one beginning to like a very fixed, distinct end in biblical history. And he is it. And this is why this is such good news for us. Wherever you guys are at spiritually, Christian or not, it's the same message for you. If this is true, if Jesus is the final word and there's no more words, then for us... He's the final word from God. Not the laws that condemn, not what others think of you, not your sin, not the devil's accusations, but instead the word of his grace 
the fact that he thinks about you, he came to find you and to save you through his bloody sacrifice. That's the final word. There's no more that happened, but plus you need to do such and such or think such and such. There's no additional word that's better. The best, wisest, most ordered, plan A word of God was always Jesus and him crucified. So strive to live as though that's true and reject a way of living that adds a plus sign after that. And we're so good at it. I'm good at that. We're, you're good. we're all good at that. Because we're natural God rejectors and we, we want to climb the ladder ourselves. But the cross takes a sawzall to the ladder a thousand times. It cuts it out of the sky and it says, Jesus comes to us, not us to him. And that kind of speaks to this last, last proverb I want to read, which is one of the last things the book says that I, I hope will um, kind of summarize a lot of what we've been saying. And if not, stand alone, that's great too. This is very, I'd forgotten this was in Proverbs, to be honest, uh, this week. And so it was fun, joyful, interesting, shocking for me to read this uh, this week and, and remember this. But let me just read it here and we'll come back and, and comment on a few things. But verse 1 starts with this man, so the author, speaking about himself. This man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Okay, Proverbs ends this way for a reason. And in case it wasn't clear up to this point, the book itself is taking the focus off of us increasingly, the, the human and the human author as well too. He's writing this way, but also us as the audience and the reader. And it's putting it more onto someone else with the question, well, who has done it? Who's kept the Proverbs? See, it's, it's like this guy got to the end of the book and he's just saying, this is heavy. I'm tired. I haven't kept these. The more I write this, the more I realize how imperfect and simple-minded and unintelligent and separated from God and evil to the core I am. I'm weary. I'm worn out. This book is not giving me joy. Who's kept them? Who's ascended into heaven and come down? What's his name? And then he adds, what's his son's name? So he, here's wisdom. We are too stupid in our sin to be saved. We're too sinful to ascend, too simple-minded to know God. As Romans 3 says, no one knows God. No one seeks for God. Foolishness says otherwise. Foolishness says we are wise enough to know him. Foolishness says we're not too stupid in our sin to be saved. Foolishness sends, we can, says we can ascend. We're fools and we think too highly of ourselves. This man's actually a man of wisdom right here. This is smart. More than smart. It's wise to say this, to feel this. 
The answer to the question, and it's actually interesting, the Psalms also ask a similar question, like in Psalm 24, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can go up to where he is? The answer is like no one, at least on a human level. But let's look at the answer in the New Testament. So and this is actually a good principle to think about if you're new to the Bible especially, but when the Old Testament asks a question, the New Testament answers it. In fact, the Old Testament's kind of one big question. How is the problem of separation from God going to be fixed? And the answer is whispered over and over again in the Old Testament, kind of like we're seeing today. But it's not clear until we get to Jesus. But, but here's what Ephesians 4 says, which is uh, something that is written to a New Testament church, to Christians. All right? Chapter 4, verse 8 to 10. This is why it says, When Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And so what Paul is saying here is, Jesus came down, he's the son of God, he became a human, and in that way he came down to save us, but then he went further into the depths of the earth when he died and was buried for our sins. Then he rose up triumphantly up into, out of the tomb, but then up into heaven to be seated next to his father. So he's the ascender, not us. He's the one who brings us as our representative, advocate, perfect human being who is also God's son. He's the ascender, and so it's through him we're saved. That is wisdom. And so elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, we, we see this. It's almost like, even though it was written a thousand years later, like Paul and this perverb, perver, Proverbs guy, I can say proverbialist, I don't know if that's a word or not, but um, like knew each other. And because the, this is, this is the, same que- the same questions are here. So in verse 20, where's the wise person? Implied answer, there aren't any. There aren't any. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So exactly what we think is wise in God's eyes is silliness. It's foolishness. This is key. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. We don't know God through our wisdom, through our acts of righteousness, through our intelligence. That's not how you know God. You don't know God by figuring him out. You know God based off of what we're going to see next here. For, it says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. In other words, it's through the folly of the simple message of Jesus' descension and gruesome sacrifice that we're saved. That's how we know God. It's on his terms. It's by him knocking on our door. It's by him kicking the door down and saying, here I am, I love you. This is what I'm like. This is what it means to be saved. It's not through human achievement or effort, but completely based on God coming to us to rescue us. Or as we say, saved by grace, not by works. That's wisdom. It's not by our moralisms, our self-actualization, or spiritual asceticism. It's not by cutting ourselves, by denying ourselves and fasting. It's only by the asceticism and the gruesome crucifixion 
of Christ and His work, the works of His nail-pierced hands, not ours, which, which is to say it's by the wisdom of God that we're saved. And He's the wisdom. The wisdom of God is not just some like concept that's possible to learn when you memorize Bible passages like on a fact-based level. It's not some teaching. Wisdom is a person. The second Solomon, the one who covered your sins and ended hate between you and God. The one who set the table and invited you in, who gave the bread of his body and mixed the blood of his wine with your sins, mingled himself with our sins to atone for them. He's the ultimate bridegroom who came to find a spouse, us, the church. He seeks us, not us, him. He's the one who has spoken last, the wisest final word of God that trumps all the former ones, replaces all the former ones that say, be perfect or be banished from God. Keep the law perfectly or be banished. Christ is the better, wiser, second spoken word because the second testament is wiser than the first. According to Proverbs, the last word is better, it's wisest. He's all these things and more. He is the ascender, he's the descender, he's the bridge, he's the ladder between heaven and earth. He's everything. The wisdom of God that Proverbs typifies and Jesus actualizes. And so I put Proverbs 9, 5 up here to, to drive this home. The, the invitation of Proverbs is in our folly and simplicity and spiritual stupidity, Run to Christ, hear his call. His blood was mixed with our, with our sin. His blood was mixed with it. He wore our sin on the cross. He became sin for us. And in that, he wants you and me to see afresh today, whether you're a Christian or not, that he loves you to hell and back. To know this, to cast yourself on him, is what it means to be wise and to not is what it means to be foolish. And we're all fools. I'm a fool. We're all a fool until we're not, until God makes us not by making us one with his son. And in that moment and in this crazy life where we stumble every day trying to believe this more and apply to this and cling to this alone, a little bit of wisdom by God's grace resides. Uh, and it's enough. It's from him. It's not in you or me. It's a gift, right? It's outside of us. Favor comes from outside. It's more like a marriage than an applied teaching. It's outside of us. So in that moment, when we hear his call, when we believe his blood is spilt for us, wisdom comes and it promise, promises us a place at his table uh, forever in the new earth and that death eventually, eventually will be no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this question today. Thank you for Proverbs that um, actually asks questions that are very similar. It asks questions of how do we understand the Proverbs? How, how can anyone keep them? What do they mean? They bring us weariness sometimes, heaviness. What liberates us is to ask, well, who besides me has kept them? Who is the unweary one? Or maybe who's been burdened by them, but, but per, who has perfected them? Who is he? What's his name? And then, what is his son's name? And the answer to those questions, of course, is, God, you are the one, and your son's name is Jesus. 
Thank you for coming into the world and saving sinful people like us, fools who have gone our own way, who believe we're good, that wisdom comes from within us, who have established ourselves against you. Um, God, thank you that you have dined, who have, you have slaughtered the beast, you've mixed yourself, you've mixed your wine, uh, you've offered the bread of your body, you've done, and you've done that for your enemies. Now, Psalm 23 is about you, not us. It's about Jesus being given a, a table to dine in the presence of his enemies. We're the enemies. That's good news. That's really, really good news that the God of the universe is an enemy reconciler and not just an enemy crusher. Now, we have no hope in the latter, but hope beyond words in the former. God, so wash us afresh, make us new as a church and as individuals. Save those here who are not Christians yet. Uh, Teach them your ways, and your way is Christ crucified. As Jesus, you yourself say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Christ we pray, amen.